Um, as you may know, uh, we are starting a new book today. We're in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to pray, uh, and then after that we'll stand and read the text together. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would text uh, as we learn from it, to hear just how much of a comforter you are for us and how you explain uh, how you want to comfort us during all of our afflictions and during all of our sufferings. It's especially applicable right now whenever we're going through maybe some health trials, some health sufferings, or even financial trials, financial sufferings, um, that whenever we are uh, needing comfort that you you, God, you will come and comfort us. So use this text mightily this morning in the lives of all the people in the church as we think on just how uh, much of a comforter you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're in the book of 2 Corinthians. If you want to stand, if you're able, I'm going to start uh, with uh, verse 1. Let's read the text together. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that <clears throat> as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort." Brothers, we do not want you to be unaware, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat if you are standing. Um, so this particular text we're looking at is uh, obviously, if you, as we're reading through it, you notice the word comfort over and over and over and over. And so uh, the big idea of verses 1 through 11 is the comfort of God. So we're going to talk about that. But first, I've got a few little introductory things just to make sure we understand what's going on in 2 Corinthians. And then I'm going to give you the outline totally. But first, I just want to give you some, some understanding of uh, what's going on here in the letter of 2 Corinthians. So um, one, one commentator says that 2 Corinthians, of all the letters that Paul writes, from Romans all the way to Philemon, that 2 Corinthians is the most personally revealing of all of Paul's letters. So he really pours out his heart and who he is um, as he has uh, written and penned this letter in 2 Corinthians. So um, just to kind of make sure we understand the whole correspondence of Paul uh, and all the letters that are going on to Corinth, here's how it works. 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that's written to the Corinthian church. So you've got letter one, which is non-canonical, non uh, non-existent. It's not in the Bible. Letter one, it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and that was the letter that Paul wrote to them, confronting he had left, and he had heard about the problems, and he wrote a letter to them, letter one, uh, that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Uh, then you have letter two that's written to them, and that's actually 1 Corinthians. Uh, and in that letter, while he was on his third missionary journey, he had heard of even more problems that were going on in Corinth. And so he wrote 1 Corinthians in chapters 1 through 6, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in chapters 7 through 16, he answers all their questions. But in chapters 1 through 6, uh, 
the problems that he had heard that were going on, this, even more problems, he addresses all of those problems in chapters 1 through 6 in 1 Corinthians. And then they had written a letter to him asking him questions. And so at the very beginning of chapter 7, verse 1 in 1 Corinthians, he goes, now about the things you ask. And then he just answers all of their questions from 7 to 13. That was letter 2. Letter 3, which is, again, non-canonical, not in the Bible, non-existent, this is what's known as the severe letter, the severe letter. And Paul had visited them at some point. And uh, whenever he was there, it didn't go well while he was there. Uh, and it's, he had a very sorrowful or painful visit with them. And after the visit, someone had openly decided to start defying Paul and insulting Paul. And as he heard about this, um, the Corinthians didn't didn't take action against that guy that was insulting Paul and defying the, the, the things that he had told them. And so whenever they didn't take action, uh, it resulted in this third letter of Paul. It was a very severe letter um, because uh, he sent it via Titus to them. It's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter, se- uh, chapter 7, verses 5 through 16. Titus would come and give it to them, uh, and he was calling them towards repentance because of this unbelievable disobedience that they had had. Um, and so Titus would report to Paul later that most in Corinth would repent after they received the severe letter. But it was, it was very confrontational and telling them that they needed to repent. That was the third letter. We don't have that. Um, now after that, Paul desired to go to Corinth again uh, because he, wanted, he knew that there was some, some friction between them. And he wanted to go to them again. Some of them have repented. Some of them hasn't. Uh, and so he was feeling like this... Things aren't good between us. And so he, that's when he writes this letter, 2 Corinthians. It's a fourth letter. He writes it uh, telling them that my, my severe letter, I know it was hard, but that's why he leads off with comfort. And, as he, and then he unpacks a whole lot of other problems that they have. And he sends it to them as a, as a way to let them know how he's feeling and what's going on before he comes. He's coming to visit them again. So he wrote 2 Corinthians. Um, that's what we're looking at here. Uh, right before he's about to visit, right after he had given them a severe letter telling them to repent. So just so you know the context of where we're picking up, there was a lot that had been going on between Paul and the Corinthians whenever they're receiving this particular letter. They had just been rebuked uh, through a letter, and most of them had repented. His desires to go there soon, and so he writes 2 Corinthians, the fourth letter, as a way to try to make things a little bit easier for when he gets there, and it's not as bad when he gets there. So 2 Corinthians was written in A.D. 56 from the region of Macedonia, And he was wise enough to know that because most of the Corinthians were repentant, um, that was good. But there were still some false apostles there. And those false apostles that were there uh, were not telling the people to repent. So he's preparing to visit. And he writes this particular letter defending his apostleship against those false preachers um, and those attacks. And, And he's giving them instruction as he writes this on their generosity and the fact that he wants to make a collection for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And he's also wanting to confront the false apostles head on in this particular letter. That's what's going on in all of 2 Corinthians. Uh, The the whole of 2 Corinthians breaks down in three main sections. Uh, Chapters 1 through 7 is where Paul is reconciling finally with the Corinthians after the severe letter. And he's also defending his apostolic position. That's chapters 1 through 7. In chapters 8 through 9, Paul addresses generosity. And it's probably the the biggest place in the Bible where generosity is mentioned. And then finally in chapters 10 through 13, that's where Paul's final challenge comes to the Corinthian church about all the things that are going on. And he tries to prepare them for his visit. Um, that's, that's the whole Bible. Now, I'm going to give you an outline of the text that we're looking at here in just a second. But I uh, just want to let you know a little bit about Corinth. If you can't remember, a long time ago we went through the book of 1 Corinthians when we were going through the book of Acts. We talked a little bit about Corinth. But uh, here's what's going on in Corinth. It was a pretty rich city. It was, it was favorably located geographically. Um, it was on a peninsula Uh, where there was lots of transport around. So it gave it a pretty big financial advantage over a whole lot of other cities that were in Greece. And so Corinth was a really large, prosperous commercial city and one of the leading cities. And the more money you have, the more access you have to sin, and the more humans that are not uh, Christians, they're going to sin. And so this city was no different than most cities where there's lots of prosperity and a lot of sin. So it was very sinful there, lots of debauchery. The city had slaves. They had sexual immorality everywhere. So much so, it was so bad 
that they actually coined the phrase to, in a verb form to Corinthianize was to commit sexual immorality. I'm going to go Corinthianize is what they would say. And that means I'm going to go commit sexual immorality. That's how bad it was in there. And so Paul goes and plants a church there. And then there's just problems after problems after problems after problems always arising. That's why he's on, he's on this fourth letter. So um, as we're going into chapter 1, verse 1, we need to realize the context is he's already written that severe letter, and now he's wanting to uh, provide for them a, lo- a big level of comfort that's going on, which is verses 1 through 11. If you, if you read, you saw the word comfort over and over. Comfort, 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 comfort. So um, on the screen, you'll see the, the outline of verses 1 through 11. This is the, the outline. You'll see that this kind of the opening prologue of verses 1 through 11. You can see there's a greeting in verses 1 through 2. You can see there's a doxology of God's comfort. That's the bulk of the sermon today, um, is the doxology of God's comfort. And into verses 8 through 11, where he's making them aware of the death sentence or the affliction that he had received. And he talks about the death sentence there in verse 9. We'll come to that in just a second. But uh, you can go ahead and take off the the outline. So here we go. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So he's writing to, just make sure you hear the way he's writing. So he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. The church, he's writing to the, the specific local church body there in Corinth. And then he extends it with all the saints who are all in Micaiah. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, yeah, there is a church universal, but I'm not, I'm not addressing church universal right now. I'm addressing local church, the ecclesia, the called out ones specifically who are in Corinth, that local body, that community of believers, that's the people I want to talk to. And then he extends greetings to all the saints that are in Achaia, uh, but he is making a clear distinction between church universal and church local. And he does not uh, equate church universal with church local. He wants you to understand that the goal of how he wants ministry to always be done is always through local churches being obedient to God's call on their specific life. And then the other churches are doing the same thing. But he's not addressing them in church universal language here, just church local. And so uh, it's important to remember that that's the way God primarily is moving, is through local expressions of local communities, and that's who he's writing to. And then he tells them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's going to launch in there into the section where it starts in verse 3 on comfort. Now, uh, before we talk about comfort, I think it would be helpful uh, to understand why we need comfort sometimes. As in, why is it that... uh, the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does that happen? Because when that happens, that's when we need comfort. But we could start with, why does that happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, So the first thing that we should make sure we understand is there's no such thing as a good person. So Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is no one right to good people. The better way to phrase it is, why do bad things happen to God's people? Why do bad things happen to God's people? Because that's not necessarily acknowledging that we are good. It's just that we are sinful like everybody else, and the Lord has redeemed us. He's shown us amazing mercy, amazing grace. And so now that we're God's people, why do bad things happen? Well, this comes from uh, John MacArthur's commentary, and he gives us quick, eight quick reasons to contemplate uh, why bad things happen to God's people. And I find these extremely helpful. So if you're in the middle of an affliction right now, we're going to talk about comfort and how God's there for you. But you might be immediately asking, why is this happening right now to me? These eight reasons that he gives, I think, are extremely helpful. Why we're in uh, suffering. You may be suffering right now from coronavirus through uh, through financial struggles or even through health struggles or many other things, just family members that you haven't been able to be in quarantine or really d- deeply desiring to see loved ones or family members that you haven't been able to see in a while and, and you're, you're feeling affliction. Here's, here's what he says, and this is very helpful, very helpful. The first reason why these things happen is to test the validity of our faith. Is our faith real or not? Number two, he, he has more. I'm just going to go through them fast. Second, is to wean us from the world, to wean us from the world. Sometimes we love the world and what it offers and 
things happen to wean us away so that we would only hope in Christ. Number three, uh, to call us towards our heavenly hope, to realize this world, this world's not our home, heaven is, and to make us yearn for that. Um, this one, this was the one I found most convicting, to reveal to us what we really love. To reveal to us what we really love. He actually, uh, I have a quote, he says this, those that seek the proven character that suffering produces and to be fellow sufferers with the Lord Jesus Christ will gladly endure trials. But those who focus on worldly things will react with anger and despair when trials strip them away. So in the end, in the end, we should gladly receive the trials that come along our way so so it reveals to us whether we truly love Christ or not. Next one uh, is to truly teach us obedience through through the trial. To teach us obedience, number six, is so that he can reveal so he can reveal his compassion to us. We go through things like this so that the Lord can reveal compassion to us and we can know what it's like to feel his compassion. The next one is to strengthen us for greater usefulness. So as we've gone through this, now we're strengthened and we're even more useful for the Lord in ministry. But we wouldn't be more useful had we not gone through that. And lastly, to enable us to be able to comfort others. We're now able to comfort others because we've gone through it. And so that's, that's why it happens. Now let's talk about the actual comfort that God gives us. Um, this particular text is the most significant passage on comfort in anywhere in the Scriptures. And you can see here it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all Murphys, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He goes on. So it's over and over talking about comfort. But don't miss this one little striking thing, right? So we're, we're, we know that this text is about comfort. How does Paul decide, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as he writes, how does Paul decide to couch maybe the most significant portion of Scripture uh, of, on comfort? How does he decide to couch it? Notice the very first word of verse 3. Blessed. Be the God and Father. So as the most important text in the Bible on comfort is being given to us by Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit, it actually starts with blessed. So he's couching it in doxology. He's couching it in uh, calling all of us to say, as I'm going to go through this terrible thing, I need God to comfort me. The most important thing for me to do is remember, this is a time for me to worship. It's couched in the word blessed, which is a doxology saying, I will choose to worship during this entire trial because I know God's going to comfort me. That's important to remember. It's important to remember. We're going to come back to that as we conclude. But it's important to remember that the way that, that's, that it's given to us is in a doxology form. It's calling us to worship and give God worship through anything. Why is he wanting us uh, to do this? Is because we realize uh, that God's the only person that's worthy of worship. So then he says, the God of all comfort. Why is, God wanting, why is Paul wanting to point them to God to comfort them? What do they need comforting for? What's happened in their life? Why is Paul specifically pointing the, second, the, I'm sorry, the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians towards this? Um, it's because, I've already said, they've had a falling away with Paul, and they're feeling very sorrowful. They had just come through some, some levels of repentance, and they're feeling bad. And Paul's wanting to comfort them as they're uh, reading this, this first letter. And so it said, Blessed be the God of our God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. So the first thing that he does is he points them to the person of comfort. These are going to be alliterated. It's going to be so fun. They're all going to start with P. So you can go ahead and put up number one. So we're talking about the aspects of comfort now. What are the aspects of comfort that Paul is teaching here uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit as this this text of scripture was written the first thing is the person of comfort there's only one person that you can ultimately go to for comfort and that's God you can you can receive levels of comfort from friends and family that God puts in you but the place the person to go to is God and so he uses three names to describe Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, the Lord describes his sovereign deity that he is that he is God. Jesus is his Hebrew name, Yeshua, which means salvation. Uh, God saves. Christ means he's the anointed one, describing him as the king of all who will defeat all of God's enemies and rule over the entire redeemed earth and the eternal state. He uses those three names. And then he goes into the father of mercy. He's talking about God the Father. Um, 
The Old Testament is replete with texts talking about God the Father as merciful. For just a couple examples, Psalm 86, 15, But you, O God, are a God of mercy and gracious. Um, you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's also some other places. I don't have time for them. Uh, but in 2 Samuel, Micah, etc. And he calls him the God of all comfort. One particular place. Um, you can see a God of all comfort right there at the end of verse 3. Um, in the Old Testament, it also calls him a God of comfort in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her for her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so um, here it, Paul is pointing them to the person of comfort. The only person that can really comfort us is God. So leading up to this letter, Paul had actually received much suffering at the hands of of the false teachers in Corinth. They had slandered him. They had attempted to discredit him in the minds of the Corinthians. And even worse, they had even tried to deceive the Corinthian church regarding the gospel. And so Paul, that can comfort you. In all of this, Paul could have despaired um, and come to a breaking point. But instead, in God's merciful comforting of him, he received the, the, the strength that he needed to be able to carry on. And so... Uh, this, this is what the context of what had happened to Paul. It, maybe you felt this as well, where people have slandered you. You felt the sting of having been slandered, and you know what that feels like uh, to have that happen. And there's only one person you can go to when things like that happen, and that is go to God. And so right now, the heartache and suffering that you're feeling in, the, in whatever situation that's going on, will you take that right now, your heartache and your suffering to God? Will you take it to him and say, this is what's going on, Lord. I need your help. Go to the one person of comfort. And if you'll do this, if you'll take your suffering to God, you might be thinking, well, if I do that, what's he going to do? Is he going to comfort me? What's going to happen? That brings us to the second aspect of, of comfort. And we looked at the person, only God. And now we look at the promise of comfort. God will do it. You're asking, will he do it? Look what it says in verse 4, the very first few words. Who comforts us in our who comforts us in our affliction? God comforts His people, um, not only because it's by nature He's a merciful comforter, but also because He's promised that He will comfort them. And if God makes a promise, God keeps His promise. Hear and feel that full weight of that comfort, uh, that promise in verse four. God will comfort you in your affliction. Go to Him. He's the only person that can do it. Go to him. God will comfort you. Perhaps I said you're already in the midst of something uh, already, with, whether it's health or finances. God's going to comfort you. He's here for you. Go to him. How can you know that? How can, you, how can we know in verse 4 that it's true? How, is there evidence that God will keep his promise? Is there something that he's done previously that would give me, a pastor or a preacher uh, of the gospel, confidence to say he will absolutely keep his promise to you right now? Of course there is. And it's called the cross of Jesus Christ. Namely, the ultimate price to redeem us, the death of his son, proves to us that God will love us, that God has the strength to protect us and comfort us and deliver us from all of our trials because the exhibit A is that he, does, he has delivered us from the evil is exhibit A that God keeps promises. And so, yes, he will. Whenever he says, I promise you in verse 4 that I will do it, you can know that this is going to happen. He will keep it. And so the person is God, and the promise of comfort is that God will do it. It's right there in 4a. Now you might ask, why would this happen to me? Why is this trial happening to me? We've already talked about that a little bit, but here we're actually going to see the, a third aspect of comfort, and that is the purpose, the purpose of comfort. What's going on? He tells us right here in the text. What, you might be asking, why has this happened? I've gone to God. I've received his, his comfort. But I want to know why this initial thing even happened. Well, there is a purpose. There's a second purpose coming later, but here's one. Here's one purpose. He tells us right there in verse 4. Um, Who comforts our affliction. And then you have the little, so that. Look at that. So that in verse 4. Here's why. Here's why. So that. Why did that bad thing happen? It happened so that God can comfort you so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort 
with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God gives us a level of comfort whenever we've gone through something. And he did that so that we can therefore go to someone else and give them that same comfort. So the third reason, or the third aspect of comfort is the purpose of comfort, which is so that you can now go comfort others. If you've been comforted by God through anything, that is not something that just terminates on you. Instead, it is something that you are now to extend to people around you. God comforts us so that we can comfort other people. So as John MacArthur says, believers then should receive comfort from God and see it as a trust or stewardship issue. When God gives me comfort, I am now to to steward this well. God's given it to me as a trust and as a stewardship issue that I must now extend it to others and pass it on to other people. Have you ever thought of it comfort that way? When God's comforting you, have you ever thought of it and received it in a way that says it's not supposed to stop with me? Instead, God's calling me now to go and comfort other people. If you think about it, this is exactly what Paul is doing for the Corinthians. The Corinthians had come and slandered him. Paul had been persecuted and God came and comforted him. And Paul wrote to them and rebuked them for their sin in that severe letter. And they were sad and they were sorrowful for their sin. Sorrowful because they didn't believe God. And in an amazing turn of events, Paul doesn't scorn them or hold a grudge against the very people that had mistreated him. Instead, he goes and comforts them with the same comfort that God had given him whenever he was mistreated. And he goes and gives it to the same people that had done that. So Paul is stewarding and taking this comfort that God had given him and extending it to the people in Corinth. Now, remember, I want to make sure that whenever you go and you go and comfort people, remember number one. Remember point number one. When God calls you to go comfort people, you are not the person of comfort. Remember, the person of comfort is still God. So you are called to go do it, that when you go do it, you point them to God, not yourself. You're not now the, the big answer to their prayers. Uh, I'm going to comfort you, and it's all about me now. We are to go comfort people, but as we go do that, remember point number one, which is God is the source of comfort. I'm just the vessel. God is still the comforter. And so when you go comfort them, and you should, you should do it. That's what we're told to do here in verse 4. You should go do it. Remember that you're, you're not to point them to yourself as the Messiah, but instead you point them to God. And that's the point of verses 6 and 7 also. You can read in verse 6, 7. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. So whenever I go and I, and I, I comfort them, I want to point them to salvation. I want to point them to the good news of Jesus. And you can read in verse 6 uh, and 7. Uh, It's for your comfort, which you experience, and you patiently endure the same sufferings which we suffer. Verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. You share in their sufferings, and you can share in their comfort. So God's God's given you this thing so that you will go and help them. And as you go help them, you want to point them to Christ. I need a little water. All right, so that was the, the third thing that we just looked at, the third aspect of comfort. Now we're going into the fourth aspect. And this one um, is, okay, if God's calling me to share this comfort with people, who do I help? Who are the specific people? If I've gone through something and God said in in verse 3, the purpose of comfort is to go and, I'm sorry, in verse 3, and Point three, if God's told me in point three that the third aspect of comfort, I'm supposed to go do it uh, for other people. Who are the people then? Which particular people am I supposed to do? Well, that brings us to the fourth aspect, which is this. The people to comfort. The people to comfort. And you can look at verse four to make sure you see it. Um, So that we may be able to comfort those who are in, look at that word, any affliction. Anyone and everyone. There's no lock you in on a certain kind of person that you're supposed to go comfort. If you've gone through something, then you go and you give that to other people. There's, there's some kind of like 
myth out there, I think, that says, unless you've gone through exactly what I've gone through personally, you are totally unqualified, therefore, to offer any comfort or any advice or any thoughts on my experience. And that's unbiblical at best and designing, uh, rejecting the very design of God at worst. Now, sure, it's helpful if you have gone through what they've gone through. If you've experienced firsthand what they've gone through, of course that's helpful and great. Praise the Lord if you are able to go comfort somebody whenever they've gone through, you've gone through the exact same thing as them. If you've gone through it, I mean, that's, you have a unique understanding of their situation. Praise the Lord if you can go comfort them. But that's not the only pigeonholed person that you're allowed to comfort. And you are allowed to comfort anybody regarding any circumstance that's, that's going through. You don't have to have gone through the one exactly, so you can't offer me any help. That's unbiblical. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. You don't have to have gone through something to be able to give comfort to somebody. Um, it's not necessary for you to have experienced the exact thing in order to be able to uh, offer comfort. It is not disqualifying if you have not gone through it. You should comfort with any affliction. You should comfort with any affliction. Just think about if that was really the case. Pastors would never be able to comfort anybody in their church unless they had gone through everything that everybody in the entire church had gone through, which is impossible, and would destroy me. It would destroy me if I went through every tragedy that everybody in the entire church went through. So um, this means, ultimately, that you and I don't have any excuse, therefore, to not go comfort people. We can't say, I can't help them. I've never gone through that. We don't have any excuse. If someone around us is going through something, whether we've experienced it or not firsthand, we are called by God to go to them and point them to God and be comfort for them. Um, Help them. Now, you'll notice as I was reading, I went from verse 4 to verse 6 and 7, and I skipped verse 5. That's because verse 5 is pretty unique. And so that brings us to our fifth one. I'll admit that verse 5 here is kind of a, a deeper aspect of comfort. You have to Put on your thinking glasses here, uh, your thinking cap, one of those two. Um, and we want to really kind of think deeply here. So go to verse 5, and you'll notice that it starts off with the word for. The ESV starts with this word for, the Greek word haughty, haughty, H-O-T-I. Not haughty like you think someone's good looking, um, but, but instead haughty, meaning because or for. For, as we share abundantly and Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul is making an explanation here. He's explaining how he's able to comfort others through his afflictions. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. He's trying to explain in a deeper level how he's able to comfort others through afflictions. And you might be able to guess, if I were to say, how is it that you can share, uh, how is it that you can comfort others through afflictions? And you grew up in Sunday school, you could say, Jesus. And that's always the answer, yes, usually. Uh, And that's correct. Uh, But let's be a little bit more precise besides just saying Jesus. The answer is the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus is the place of comfort. The life of Jesus, that brings us to our fifth one. I'm going to explain what that means, um, but that brings us to our fifth aspect of comfort, which is the place of comfort. The place of comfort is the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus Christ that he lived is our place of comfort. What Paul is doing here in verse 5, ultimately, is helping us with our identity. Sometimes people would say, hey, your identity is in Christ. And that's exactly right. But what does that mean? It means um, I don't believe now that my identity is wrapped in who I used to be or my former sin or whatever I think is cool. But instead, here's Jesus and my identity is now hidden in Christ. And Christ is my identity now, not me. And that's what he's trying to help us see. Consider where Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrections and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Or 
and we're reminded in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, where it says, we are literally baptized into his death. And then Galatians 2.20 says, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. These are all identity things. Our identity is now in Christ. I'm going to explain how that relates to the place of comfort and how the life of Christ. What Paul's saying here is this. As Christians, we are living the life of Christ now. Our identity is in him. At the, the eighth beatitude in verses 11 through 12, blessed are those who persecute you and do all kinds of things against you in my name. So we, because we bear the name of Christ now, we are going to receive persecution. Our calling to preach Christ to this dying world will bring persecution to us. But it's precisely the li- uh, in that life of preaching Christ that our identity is in him. We actually now, when we preach Christ and we're persecuted, we literally, as it says, share in his sufferings. Verse 5, for we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. For as we share in Christ's sufferings, because our identity is in Christ now, how through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So as we share in his sufferings, we also share in his comfort So the place of comfort is in the life of Jesus. We are able to actually, how we're able to do it is because we share in his sufferings. Namely, we're persecuted because we're Christ followers. We also now share in his comfort. One commentator says it this way. He says, because Christians do not merely imitate, follow, or feel inspired by Christ, but actually live in him or a part of him dwell supernaturally in a new world where the air they breathe now is the actual Holy Spirit, then for them, henceforward, suffering accepted in Christ must bring comfort. Death accepted in Christ now must bring life. Weakness accepted in Christ must bring strength. Foolishness accepted in Christ must bring wisdom. And so as we are... Um, literally receiving the sufferings of Christ, not the same thing as him. We're not on the cross. We're not dying for the sins of the world, but we are being persecuted. Now we receive the, the we're our identities in Christ because we share in his sufferings. We literally now, as it says, also, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, we also share abundantly in comfort too. So we're living our life in Christ, knowing that our identities in Christ, and as we're sharing in his sufferings, we literally can share in his comfort. That's the place of comfort. It's in the life of Christ. You are able to comfort others correctly because your identity is in Christ and you share in his sufferings and you share in his um, huge ability to be able to comfort people because you have Christ in you. The place of comfort is literally in your identity in Christ. That's how you're able to comfort others. Which brings us to another purpose. So we saw... Uh, In verse 4, we have things happen to us so that we can comfort others. Now we have another purpose. Why did this happen to me? The first reason why this happened to me is in verse 4, so that you can comfort other people. The second reason that Paul gives that this happened to you is in verses 8 and 9. So read verses 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us, here it is, rely not upon ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That brings us to the sixth aspect of of comfort, which is this. The second purpose of of comfort is to rely on God. The first comfort, I'm, I'm sorry, the first purpose of comfort, which we saw, is so that you're, You'll be able to comfort others. The second is so that you'll rely on God. So you might be asking yourself, why did this happen to me? It's so that you can share comfort with other people. Why did this happen to me? Verse 8 says, so that you won't rely on yourself and you'll rely on God. That's what it says in verse 8. If you remember, um, you're supposed to comfort other people. But he tells us here, the second reason is so that you will rely on on God. So let's, let's feel the full weight of so that we will rely on God. So let's feel the full weight of verses 9b where he says that. In order to do that, we need to go through all of verse 8 and 9 to get the full weight of it and he, to see what's actually happened in Paul's life. So we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So he says, we experienced 
some major affliction in Asia. We have no details as to what this experience was. Nothing tells us in the scriptures what happened. Nor do we get any details about what brought about the actual recovery that he had in Asia. We have nothing. And this is purposeful. Paul wants all the emphasis not to be on him and his experience and, his, and what happened to him, but totally on God's rescue. He wants it to be all about God's rescue. God gets all the attention here, not Paul. But he says, we don't want you to not know. We did have, we did have some kind of affliction in Asia. And then he says, for we were was literally crushed to the point of depression in this experience that it was beyond his strength to even deal with it. I, could, I can't even, is what he was saying in contemporary terms. And then he says that he literally despaired of life itself. The last few words in verse 8, despaired of life itself. The despair means I had no passage. I had no way out. I had no exit. Paul saw no way to escape. As a matter of fact, as he says in verse 9, we, had, we felt that we had received the, as it says, the sentence of belief. Death sentence had been given to him. That's how he was. So we need to feel the full weight of where he was in his mind frame. Like, it was all over. I was going to die. And then he says, but all that happened to me so that it would make me rely not on myself, but on God. God brought Paul all the way to the end of himself to where he couldn't rely on himself anymore. And then he said, now you're going to rely on me. Sometimes that happens to us. Sometimes that happens to us. The, the purpose is why you might be going through this right now is so that you will rely on God. We can be, as human beings, quite resourceful. We can keep trying to make it all happen. And God might be bringing us all the way to the end of ourselves, where we say, like Paul, I can't do it. I cannot do it. I have to rely on God. And that's good for you. It would be good if that was actually happening way earlier in our life. Like we didn't try to do everything that's happening, but we relied on God early. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't want to. We want to take it all on our own hands and take it all on our own power. And eventually God will bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will finally say, I have to rely on you, God. And that's what's going on here. The the purpose of comfort being extended to them is so that they would learn to rely on, themse- on, on God and not on themselves. Uh, Paul wanted them to feel and understand this, that it was God who could comfort him. And he wanted them to teach, God wanted to teach Paul and everybody, he wants all of us to learn that we have to trust in God and not ourselves. Do you eschew suffering? Do you try to throw it away? Um, if you do, do you run from tough experiences that God is orchestrating in your life uh, just because they're difficult, might be difficult? If you are, you're missing out on the opportunity to stop relying on yourself and start relying on God because all of this is found in the comfort that God gives to us. God wants us to rely on Him and not on ourselves. As it says in verse uh, that was to make, look at verse 9. Here's, here's the key. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. And then he puts, who raises the dead? Who raises the dead? Why does he put that? It means God wants you to rely on him, not yourself. If he's literally able to raise the dead, if he's able to bring Christ back from the death of, of, of the cross, well, certainly he can handle our problems. If, if he can raise Jesus Christ from the dead to save us from our sins, the entire world, well, certainly he can handle whatever's going, us, going on in our problems. So that little phrase, who raises the dead, um, that's a huge phrase. He's couching it all in the gospel and saying, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know that we can rely on God. Somebody say amen. That's good news. Somebody. Amen. Yes, there we go. The three people here will say amen, and hopefully you're saying it at your house. Um, and you can ask yourself, okay, I'm bought in. I believe in comfort. I believe that God's going to do it. But here's my question, Fud. Is it ever going to run out? 
Is this comfort ever going to finally stop? Is there an out one day? Is God's comfort going to run out one day? It's not. There's a, there's a full supply chain of comfort coming from God that's never, ever, ever, ever going to end. Here's where we see it. Verse 10. Look at this. Um, that brings us to the seventh aspect of comfort, the permanence of comfort. Verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. So he delivered us, past tense, from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. As in this present tense, on him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Past, present, future, all encapsulated there in verse 10, meaning his comfort is permanent. It's never going to run out. He delivered us, and so we've set our hope on him. And we know that he will continue to do it. The writer of Lamentation says this, But this I call to my mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The permanence of God's comfort tells us that we can, as he says, set our hope on it. Where do you set your hope? On the permanence of God. It's there forever. As Lamentations. I want to read it again just to make sure you hear it. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Lamentations chapter 3, 21. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's sing it. Great is... No, I'm not going to do it. So you, we got it. Like The permanence of God's comfort is that it will never, ever, ever end. John MacArthur says, Paul was confident that God had not only delivered him in the past, but that he would deliver him in the future because God is faithful because God is faithful. There is never a time when the comfort of God will not be present in our lives at any moment. Set your hope on Christ, as he tells us to in verse 10. This is the constant and faithful. Now, um, on this last one of, of aspect of comfort, I'm going to change the wording. We've always been doing the something of comfort, the something of comfort. I'm going to reverse the words for you because this is what Paul does. Look at verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. The eighth aspect is, switch it up, the comfort of prayer. The comfort of prayer. Prayer is, it is a comfort. It's an absolute comfort in our own personal lives. And knowing that when you say to someone, hey, I just prayed for you, it brings them comfort. You should pray for people and you should tell them, hey, I prayed for you. Um, We as elders, uh, the third Monday of every week, we grab the entire list of people that come to Remedy Church and we just go through. We pray for y'all individually. We go all the way through as much as we can. And for a straight hour, we pray for you individually and we stop. And then we do it again right where we stop. We pick up again and then we keep going. Sometimes that last person, we pray for that person twice. We pray for them the, the end and the beginning and we keep going. You are prayed for specifically third week of the month by the, by the Remedy Elders. You specifically. We think of you and everything going on and we pray for you. Sometimes I'll text you and tell you. Sometimes we'll shoot a, a, an email saying, hey, we prayed for you tonight. Um, knowing that that's happening for you. That brings comfort. Wow. People are thinking about what's going on in my life and praying for me to pursue Christ, to know Christ, to go through these things that are going on, that I would, I would be a person that wants to do evangelism, be a person that wants to love, love the Lord. Um, that's comforting, and that's what's here. We're granting blessings to others, as it says. You may also help us by prayer that we give thanks for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. You literally grant blessings to other people as you pray for them. Paul desires for the Corinthians to participate in the amazing work that God is doing by joining them through prayer. One commentator says, in prayer, human, this is so good, this is so good. In prayer, human impotence casts itself at the divine omnipotence. I'm going to say it one more time. Insists itself at the feet of of divine omnipotence. I can't do anything. I throw myself towards you because you can do everything. That's what we do in prayer. And Paul views the prayers of the church as crucial 
to his ministry. He needs the comfort of knowing that people are praying for him so he can continue. And so uh, when people pray for us, it is majorly, majorly comforting. And conversely, you can offer people great comforting, comfort by praying for them and letting them know that you're praying for them. So let's conclude this way. Paul was on his way to Corinth. And as he was on his way to Corinth, he writes this letter because he was going to confront those false teachers that were still there, um, hoping that they would repent. And as he experienced suffering like he had done in Asia, um, perhaps even more was come. He needed the comfort of God to sustain him. God had demonstrated over and over and over and over in Paul's life that he's faithful. And most notably, he had displayed that to Paul where? In Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus when he was saved, where the Lord appeared to him. And if God had saved Paul and Paul knew that he has been faithful to me over and over in my life, especially on the road to Damascus, then he knew that he could trust God to continually offer him uh, comfort in the midst of all of his sufferings. So the same is true for you. If God has saved you and done the most important thing in your life, then you know that you can trust him with all the other things going on in your life to come and comfort you. So back to verse 3. Back to verse 3, first word, blessed. Remember that all of the comfort talk that Paul's offering is something that's personally happened to him. He's writing from things that he has personally been afflicted, as it says in verse 4. He has personally suffered in verse 5. And yet, even though he's personally experienced this thing, he starts with the word blessed in verse 3, telling us that the worship of God through suffering in the midst of our suffering is crucial. That God is calling us to worship him. If you're suffering right now, God's going to comfort you, but God also wants you to worship him through it all. Worship him because he's worthy. Worship him because he is, um, he is the provider of our salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ has shown us his ultimate mercy by his death and his resurrection, his cross and the empty tomb. The cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection is the good news. And he has brought us ultimate comfort knowing that we are now free from sin and the condemnation that we rightly deserve has been given to us. And we have been forever blessed. It's right, the good news of gospel. So when we see the word blessed and he's calling us towards worship, it's right. I'm going to close with this uh, commentator. He says this. Paul's call in chapter 1 verse 3 to praise God's character is in effect a call to be comforted. Since in, so, in doing so, we are affirming in the midst of all of our adversity that God is the one that can comfort us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word here. I thank you as we've learned about comfort uh, and all the aspects of it, Lord, that we would, we would come to you whenever we know we need comforting. And as we've been comforted by you, that we will extend it out to other people. We thank you so much, God, for just how kind you've been to us. Thank you for this letter of 2 Corinthians where you've um, been so gracious to teach us about who you are and your character. For all the people here at Remedy who are at 2 Corinthians over the time that we study it. And Lord, I pray for all the people here at Remedy who are experiencing suffering right now. God, that you would um, give them comfort. That you would extend through them, through the person of Christ, all that they need to be able to uh, live lives of worship for you, that at, in the middle of their suffering, they truly would see it as a, as a place of doxology. They would see it as a place that they could worship you. Use us mightily in the lives of other people to comfort them. Help us see it as a stewardship issue. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.